Let's pray and we'll read a little bit. Jesus, uh, thank you for, as Benji just said, thank you for work you're doing in us, um, in us individually and, and in our little church body. Thank you even, even for some of the pain that we feel right, right now from sending a bunch of our friends over to West Columbia, and the, the birth pains of sending some, sending some of our best friends that way, and, and we're really uh, excited about what you're doing with them. And uh, we're excited about how you're, going to, how you're going to grow us, both through the process of sending them and, and as you're going to fill in the seats that they left open. Uh, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the coolest things is I just heard Benji say that, that you know, a couple folks have come to Christ in our, in our little group. Is, is It's a fun way to see 40 or so people go to West Columbia and we kind of open up some spots. And then spots get filled as folks come to Jesus. So that is a really cool way for a church to be healthy and stay healthy. So <laughs> that's exciting. So we're reading John chapter 4. I don't know if you haven't been here before. We're working through a book in the Bible. It's called John. They named it John because John wrote it. All right, just so you know. It's not too new, too uh, intellectual that way. Uh, we're in chapter 4. We're in chapter 4, and um, we spent two Sundays in chapter 4, and I just want to give you like the skinny of chapter 4, and then we're going to pick it up toward the end. If you can imagine, disciples and Jesus, they're on this, this trip, and they're going to, uh, to Galilee, and so they've got to go through a little area like Samaria. So a lot of y'all do family trips on occasion. Family trips can be chaos, and for, for us, we're trying to break the old world record. That's just how I roll, all right? So we're rolling down the highway, and we wait for dinner till we see a Chick-fil-A sign. Right, that's just how it works. And you pull off the Chick-fil-A exit. You can imagine disciples are rolling down I-20. They pull off to get a Chick-fil-A. And you know how when you come up to the sign it says 3.3 miles of Chick-fil-A, it just makes you, at least in my case, it makes me mad, right? You ever done the 3.3 and be like, all right, I'll do it, I'll do it. You drive 3.3 miles to Chick-fil-A, and what, what, what day of the weekend? It's Sunday. And then you're really mad, right? I've done that a couple times. Like, that's sorry, that's Rascal. i got too many convictions. Open the daggum store. Anyway, um, uh, the disciples, as if they're on this journey and, and they get to this well, Jesus is really tired and, and they leave him and they're like, we're going to go down and get some food and we'll bring it back. You just sit here by the well and, and we'll go get some food and, and we'll bring it back. And then, then this chapter four, just so you understand, John wrote this book because he wanted to convince people to believe. But, but a lot of Jewish folks are reading this book, and when they're reading this story about Jesus talking alone with this woman, there is tension, deep tension in there. They were struggling with the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, but now Jesus is talking to a woman, a shamed woman, by himself. You've got this conversation going on, and you can imagine the listeners, particularly before, I mean, there's no movies, right? Today in a movie, you would be able to you'd be able to cut the tension with a knife as you're reading the story. And Jesus has this dialogue. They, they would be uncomfortable just with the conversation because it's a man and a woman. They'd be more uncomfortable comfortable because this is a shamed woman. And then they'd be really uncomfortable. As you read it, probably there's some spiritual stuff in there that is, it just makes you feel tense. So we come to verse 27. And I want you to catch this because I have a feeling John is doing this absolutely on purpose because there's this really beautiful moment with Jesus in verse 26 says, and Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And then verse 27, it says, just then the disciples came back. It's this, it's almost as if the, the scene is so tense, John wants to say, and here's Barney Fife, 
<laughs> right? <laughs> and Barney Fife rolls up into the middle of the most tense moment, and as only Barney Fife does, he starts asking stupid questions, and you, you get just some humor. Yeah, it says, and then the disciples showed back up, and, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. What do, you want? what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? And the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the, the village to see him. So you get this kind of funny, funny moment where these guys come up and they, they actually say what they're thinking. And I, I want you to hear that. I, he, he writes that passage very intentionally. He says, uh, he says, why is he talking to the woman? To a woman? Why did he say that? Why is he saying that? Because in that culture, this never happened. Never happened. So I'm going to tell you something. Some stuff comes along these days, particularly in our culture, that makes it seem like the followers of Jesus aren't sensitive to women. As a matter of fact, some would say that, that the church has tried to push women day, which could, it couldn't be anything further from the truth. What's Genesis say? Genesis says that a man and a woman were cre created in God's image and that they were equal. From the very beginning, God the Father created man and woman equal. So, so Jesus is, when he's talking to this lady, he's doing something nobody else would do. He's actually going and defending the rights of women. You need to understand that Jesus is doing stuff nobody else would do. He had this conversation, and it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Over and over in his ministry, he's going to deal with ladies like nobody else did, with respect, not in a sexual way, not treating them like they're less than, like most of the culture did, but treating them like they're equals. Next Sunday on Easter, we're actually going to see the women are going to be the first one to come see the risen Savior. What, who would write the story in that day, in that culture, that would highlight women first? Only Jesus. So let me just be really clear, and you can claim this however you need to, but throughout history, wherever the followers of Jesus have been, the rights of women have gone up, the safety for women has gone up, the health of women has gone up. It's happening now in our world today as Christianity moves into parts of Africa, ladies are safer and healthier because Jesus valued women. So it's just ignorance that would say anything otherwise. There certainly are some times, however, that the church, the church in the United States, certainly some fundamental type churches will demean a lady which could not be further from the teachings of the Bible. It's arrogant. I won't go any further. I have some other adjectives come to my mind. <laughs> um, let me say, ignorance is a nice way to say it. I appreciate that. Um, I want you to feel that. Jesus is for women. John writes that on purpose. And as he's visioning himself, his Barney Fife, he's like, we didn't get it. We just didn't get it. We didn't understand. And so he wants to elevate what Jesus is doing. And, and you need to feel this. This lady has shamed even among her own people. She is a, a lady full of shame. And all of a sudden, as this passage unfolds, you see a lady who not five hours earlier came in the middle of the day so nobody would see her, and now all of a sudden her shame is overcome. She goes back to her people, and she's all of a sudden from being a shamed woman to being a missionary, a person with authority. Somebody has something to say, and so much so the people hear her. 
That's what Jesus has been doing for a couple thousand years. I heard an amazing story this week. A lady, uh, she said this phrase, and it kind of made uh, everything stand still. She said, I'm an abused woman. And I know a little bit of her backstory. And um, she went on to say, but I'm not a bitter woman. And then she began to walk through the process to where when she came to Jesus and over the course of time has, has become this powerful, not somebody you would pick out of a crowd as great, this powerful lady who's able to forgive and have health in her life. And she, she would say, I don't walk around with my head down because of the Messiah. Because of this relationship I have with the Messiah. There's a book out by Francis Chan. It's on marriage. Maybe some of y'all marriages, most of our marriages need a little checkup at least once in a while. And sometimes they just come off the tracks. But what's interesting, it's, I need to write, this is the book I was going to write. For the first five chapters, he just keeps saying, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. And if you do that, evidently, according to Francis Chan, you have a healthy marriage, which is just true. Like, most of the time, we were like, give me, give me a checklist so I can get this thing fixed. Well, the checklist is a little more complex than that because when I follow Jesus, I die to myself. And when I die to myself, the people around me kind of stay happy because I'm about them. So my marriage improves, my neighborhood relationship improves, the people on my ball team, my relationship with them improves because I die, I die to myself. It's powerful. So we read on. Verse 30 uh, uh, three. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. All right, he just had this great conversation with the lady. She's run back to the town to tell everybody about it. And I just have this picture of Peter standing over here with 12 grilled chicken nuggets, right? Andrew's holding sweet tea, like shaking the styrofoam cup, all proud of it. And, and, and maybe somebody's got some fries that are getting cold because they get cold fast. You can barely get down the road before, before you have your fries. And they're still focused on food. And what's Jesus say? It's really, it's really a great statement. He says, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. I have a kind of food you know. Now, what's he saying? I am full. I already ate. I'm full. I don't need any more. You ever had a job that you like so much that you forget to eat? No, ain't nobody had a job like that, right? I mean, I ain't never had a job like that. You're like, no, when 10 o'clock comes and I can get a Twinkie and some coffee, I ain't never missed that. And my, there's this picture. I've had days in the past that just, it was, the day was so good, you forget lunch, and the next thing you know, it's supper time. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm full, bro. I just, I was thirsty and I was tired, but I just had this great conversation with a seeker, somebody interested in Jesus, and now I'm full. I'm full of joy. I'm full. I don't need your Chick-fil-A. And the disciples, just like Barney Fife, they just don't get it. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other, what's going on here? Verse 34, and Jesus explained. And here's, here's kind of your crockpot verse for the week. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. My nourishment, NASB says, my food comes from serving God. There's this uh, idea in that passage. Last week, we talked about being true worshipers. 
So we kind of talked about the B. We come, we, we learn to worship God, kind of in our seat, not moving, knowing how great he is. And in our seat, we begin to recognize how great he is. In our mind, in our heart, we embrace that. We, we wanted to be true worshipers. We talked about that last one. That's the B. That's B worship. This week, you kind of grab that passage and you begin to think this is do worship. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God. Romans 12.1 is a great verse. It starts, if, you're, if you grew up in church, it started like this. It always intrigued me. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. I just like the way that sounds. I had no idea what that meant. What he means is listen. And at the, end of the, at the end of the passage, he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. So we had this worship while we're sitting down where our hearts are full about God. And all of a sudden, God's in, Jesus is introducing something new. He, it, Pete brought this up the other day when we were talking about my nourishment comes from doing the will of God. In other words, I'm worshiping with my feet. I'm moving. I'm doing something. I think I've told this story before, but it seemed very appropriate. I grew up, my father uh, had a friend who was a paraplegic. His name was Buddy Rice. And, uh, man, most of middle school and a lot of high school, we uh, got in my dad's station wagon at 6.30, so I feel for the setup, high school setup boys, except I did every week, just so you know. And, uh, and I rode with my dad, and we picked up Buddy Rice. My dad would go in the house. We didn't have any modern contraptions, and Buddy was about 6'4", and he probably weighed about two bills. And my dad's about 6'2", and Buddy had a little use of one arm. And he would reach his arm up around my dad's neck up out of the bed, and I would grab Buddy's feet, and then we'd walk him out to my dad's station. We'd slide the seat all the way back, and we'd put him in, and we'd strap him in, take him to church, set him up in church, bring him back home. We did it every Sunday, over and over and over. Let me ask you something. When was my dad worshiping more? Before, during, or after church? Right? Because he sat in, he sang, and they read the word, and that was worship. But was it not worship when he was serving Buddy Rice? Perhaps a deeper worship, right? Because I don't know why else you do that day after. I'm not sure I worshiped a lot of those mornings, to be quite honest, because I wasn't real happy that the man was banging on my door at 630 to go pick up this guy whose house stunk. And I, I always, like, would hold my nose going into the house. But my father saw that as a moment to serve, and it came out of who he was. What a gift to me as a kid, even though I probably didn't get a whole lot of credit for worship. I got to see the joy of worshiping with my feet. I tell you what, bro, I want to get that get to my kids. I hope you can give that gift to your kids because we're in a culture that kind of circles around the kids and we apologize for making them work. we sure enough not going to teach them how to worship work with their feet. We constantly want to put them in a place where they're happy. In reality, we're cursing them by making them weak whiners. They don't know how to move their feet and have joy from serving other people, which we're going to read in this passage is the greatest joy on the face of this earth. Instead, we're going to teach them to worship themselves and curse them, potentially to hell. Because they can never bow the knee to the God of the universe. So, man, more hype to my high school setup team. Uh, we make no apologies for that around here. We actually feel like we're blessing high school boys. They get up early in the morning and come and work. 
It takes a little while, speaking from the old man's perspective, to learn to set up some chairs and worship while you're doing it, right? It takes a little while. But there's this potential according to this passage. Jesus says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God. You ever serve when you serve, and at the end you just feel full? It's good. I don't want to rob you of it. Read on. You know the saying. It's colloquial saying. Four months between planting and harvest. Jesus just quotes farmers. Everybody's a farmer in ancient culture, right? The harvest are, harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit, uh, the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying. One plants, another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. What's he saying? It's as if he's saying that your joy is directly tied to how you serve your neighbors. And to be more specific, whether you're going to plant seeds in their lives or harvest fruit from their lives, there seems to be this deep joy given to the followers of Jesus by how they love the people in their radius. I love the passage. That might be ought to be our theme verse at radius. It's this this, this is like the best life. There's a phrase in there. I, I loved it. It says, wake up. Lift your eyes, says one translator. Lift your eyes. See what I'm seeing. Malachi plays basketball for me. He's a point guard, and I'm constantly yelling, get your head up, which he does really well now. Get your head up because you can't share unless your head's up. You're looking at what you're doing, and in essence, you're so consumed with what you're doing and where you are, you can't see anything else going on. And the only way we can win is if we share. Now, last night, I'm, my voice is sore, not because of the pollen, because he wouldn't shoot it. So I finally like, stop sharing it and shoot it. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> doesn't really go with my illustration. But anyway, there's, a, there's this... Uh, there's this idea that the great life for the follower of Jesus is by sharing our stuff. So we have to have our heads up, and this whole thing's going down. The Samaritans are turning to Jesus. It's as if there's two scenes going on. It's back and forth between over in Samaria where the woman's giving them the good news, and over here with the disciples, we've got this other conversation going on, and it's, it's cool. It's back and forth, and he's, he's working. John's working in this passage. It's beautiful. He... Uh, he says, is, he says that the harvesters get good wages. I thought, man, we ought to just talk about that. I'm taking financial peace with Rodney and Cheryl and I. Are like We're working through all of our stuff. So you, you want to learn some money stuff, we ought to go check it out. And, and Sleem, last week, he's teaching the class, and he talked about if you've invested $2,000 each month for like 10 years when you're 20, then you'd be like a millionaire by the time you're 65. I mean, anyway, it's just depressing, all right? It's, it's just depressing. <laughs> Helpful, <laughs> let me be clear. Very helpful, but depressing. So Reeves got work to do from the financial standpoint, and we're working on it. But one of the rides home, I got that chance when I got to the house to talk to Cheryl, and we just looked at each other, and we said, we are so rich. I need to be straight with you. On my little spreadsheet, it does not reflect that richness, <laughs> nor do the mileages on my cars or any investments that I don't have. But we have invested a whole lot of who we are in people. And according to this passage, I'm going to get paid for that. Let, let, let me be straight with you. 
I don't mean that there's going to be an Escalade roll up in the yard anytime soon. <laughs> but I would say that I already feel the richness of that. I, I, when I read that, I don't even think about heaven. I think about the now, like where we live now. One of the reasons our life is so rich is because we've invested in people. And particularly in people who are ripe for the harvest, people that want to begin following Jesus. And in spreading seed, you'll see that some spread the seed and some harvest, and it's as if it doesn't matter. And there's just this joy in both places, not, not without sacrifice. It costs us a lot. The investment is deep. The discipline to invest, to invest in that way into people is deep. And there's this disappointment that comes on a regular basis that's hard to articulate but I can tell you as a matter of fact that we feel rich. And if, if you don't give to your neighbors, that might, be, that might be part of your problem. We all got problems, right? A couple years ago, Robert Kimball, who was the pastor at Radius in Iowa, the little church that we started in the hood, and his daughter, who's 17 at that time, named Nakia, I baptized similarly. I mean, this little little building we got right right in the downtown Dubuque, and it was over on the side. And and I don't know what it was about that moment, but watching her be baptized, I could, I just was overflowing with joy. Hopefully, that'll become the culture of Radius White. No, we got a bunch of folks that want to be baptized again here soon. And as you read this passage and you anticipate what Jesus is saying, that ought to be like the highlight of our time as people give their lives over to Jesus. And in essence, they're harvested. They move to truly follow Jesus. Because of how we're set up with the spirit within us, there's this great joy that comes out of that. So it also ought to move our feet. Perhaps you should invite somebody next Easter, as Benji said. Next week, it's this chance to introduce somebody just to the gospel. We, you know, we're going to explain the gospel clearly next Sunday. It don't matter how yellow the clothes are or pink. We're just going to be clear. We'll have a lot of fun. We'll be in there. We're going to just present the gospel. And that might be the easiest way for you to bring somebody up underneath it and bring them with you and sit with them and, and talk with them afterwards and follow up with a conversation. For some of you, you actually need to have that conversation with your neighbor without bringing them here. And for some of your relationships, it's not time yet, right? Because this is about them, not us. We're not trying to break some record by how many people we have in a room, but we do want the gospel to go out. Check out the passage. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I did. And when they came, uh, and when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Uh, so he stayed for two days. I want you to catch that part. Who's with Jesus during the two days? All the Samaritans, right? Stay in a hotel. Who else? Disciples, right? And not, not just a little while ago, they, could, they had no idea why he's talking to this woman. And now on the job training, he's showing them what the will of God is. That they represent Jesus to whomever God puts before them. And it's as if John and Barney Fife's brothers, they're all kind of getting it all of a sudden. The lights are coming on. For some of you in this group, like the lights come on. You know how when you're sitting there and all of a sudden the lights come on? It's a beautiful picture. And he said that, that we stayed there for two days long enough for many more to hear the message and believe. Notice the disciples are no longer saying we need to get on the road. They're just hanging out. 48 hours with people they wouldn't have been seen with. Not a day ago. And, they, and, and then they said to the woman, this is Samaritans, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because of what we 
heard him uh, say himself. Oh, I lost my spot. But because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And so you have basically this revival. I don't know if you've ever read about Billy Graham, but the first time he went to Los Angeles in the 1950s, he was planning on staying a week, and he just stayed because people kept believing. They stayed in his tent. It's a dramatic story if you read, it, read his autobiography, and it's kind of when you, the paper started talking about him, but you kind of feel that. Samaritans, he's here. He's not doing any miracles or anything, is he? He's just being himself. And people are believing, and the disciples are watching, and they're learning how to be full by worshiping with their feet. Verse 43, at the end of the two J's, and, and I really believe this miracle, John is real intentional about where he puts his miracles. It, there's chronological order here, but there's also this deep significance. At the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee, so he's finally got where he's going. He's back to the Jews, right, his people. So he finally gets to Galilee, and he himself had, uh, had said, a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Anybody ever, you ever heard that before? Prophet's not honored. Why is that? When you go back to Anderson, South Carolina, what does everybody remember? Yeah, they remember when you went trick-or-treating and you scared the stew out of their little girl, and they remember when you threw up in their driveway, and they, they remember all this stuff about you. So then when you come in and try to say something with authority, they remember you when you were a boy. They don't remember you as a man. So he's back in his hometown, and Jesus, he makes this statement. But what's, what's significant about Jesus? They remember him as a boy and as a man, but they don't know him as the God-man. So he's coming back to town, and they don't know. They're kind of nice to him. He himself said a prophet. He says, yet the Galileans welcomed him in. It's, it's as if they're saying, oh, he's so sweet. You know how people are around here. For, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, and they'd seen everything that he did there. He'd done some miracles, and they were turned on by it. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, and he turned the water into wine. And, and uh, there, there, uh, there was a government official in a nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum and heal his son who was about to die. Check out this line. It's crazy. It makes you kind of mad at Jesus. Will you never believe in me unless, I, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? doesn't seem really politically correct, does it, or sensitive to this man's plight. His son is dying, and Jesus looks up and says, will you never believe unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? What's going on here? I hope you can feel with this story the contrast between the Samaritans and the people from Jesus' hometown. Samaritans need nothing, right? They just never heard of Jesus. Jesus introduces himself to a shamed woman. Shamed woman goes back to the town and they believe. The folks that these Jewish folks in Galilee, these spiritual folks, look down on. He comes to Galilee and the first thing they do is, you know how people are when they're sweet to you but they really want something? They think he's a magician or a lucky charm. You know, the person you can put a sticker on your car and think that's going to make your kid get a hit in the game tonight. It's like religion. It's just this thing we play to try to get favor in this world. In some senses, they're like Southern Christians that are too familiar with church and they don't know Jesus. They're familiar with him, but they don't really want him. You have this pretty cool moment where 
As I picture it, he speaks to them as he speaks over this man's head. As you'll, you'll see, this man whose son's dying, it's as if he doesn't even hear Jesus. It's almost as if he's speaking and, and, and looking at this man. But you ever do that? Mamas are like magic like this. They'll, they'll, they'll yell at one kid but really be talking to another kid. I don't really know how that helps things, but Cheryl's got a way with it. It, it works. Um, but there's just this moment where Jesus says, Will you never believe unless you see the miracles and signs and wonders? It's as if you just will only come to a church if the stage is great, if you're entertained. One of my favorite things that people say, I just don't get fed. Talk about church. I'll be like, well, how about reading your Bible? That'd be a good way to get fed. Because that's kind of what we hope to do here at Radius is that we read the Bible out loud so you'd read it at home. It's a way to get fed. We, we want to demonstrate it, so I just keep reading it and talking about it. But at the end of the day, if you want to get strong and get fed, then you got to read it yourself. But it's as if this isn't, that's what the people, they just want some more entertainment. They don't really want to follow Jesus, do they? Official pleaded, this is beautiful. I can imagine, man, if my son was passing, it's as if he didn't hear a word Jesus said. Lord, please, maybe takes Jesus by hand, come now before my little boy dies. Can you feel that? And Jesus told him, go back home, your son will live. I probably said that wrong. There's an exclamation point. Go back home, your son will live. Check out how this guy responds. And the man believed that Jesus said, and he started home. It's about a 20-mile walk. Can't, I don't have time to hit it all, but this guy evidently just starts walking. There's no miracle. There's no, like, snap. Jesus doesn't snap his fingers. He doesn't, like, put up a puff of smoke. All the people in Galilee are disappointed. There's no big miracle. But this guy who has true belief experiences God's power, and he moves in a spiritual way, and he believes in the moment. As a matter of fact, some guys meet him halfway to say that his son is all right. You don't need to talk to, to the Messiah anymore. And he's like, well, when did that happen and they tell the time, and he's like, that's exactly when Jesus said it would happen. It's this beautiful, miraculous moment. And, and at the very end, it, it says, and he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Verse 54, this was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. It's this really cool contrast that Jesus puts between the southern Christians and the Samaritans who they look down on. And this guy that might be one of their own or might not be, but he had to come from a town way over there to ask for something in belief. And he puts pressure on us, doesn't he? I can feel it as I say it. Has Jesus, the idea of Jesus, the Bible, church, has it become too familiar to you? When we read this story, who are you? Right? Who are we? I, I straight up really relate to the Barney Fife boys <laughs> when I read the story. I feel like I walk with Jesus, and then some days I am just so clueless that it does not. It's embarrassing when I look back. I can imagine John writing this chapter and just going <laughs> and just chuckling. Maybe his pen being scribbled like, can you believe we said that? We were right there with the king of the universe, and we said that. Palm Sunday. Not too long later in John, um, we're going to get to Palm Sunday. Each of the writers write about it. Jesus goes and he gets a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. 
We always expect the king to come into town. Back in the day, now we come in in a, on a, in a big tank or something. If we were some dictator from another day, we'd ride in on a tank and we'd be dressed in full uniform and be ready for back then. The guy would come in on a big white horse that would just be jacked with muscles and he would have on all of his, all of his, his sword and all of his battle uh, uh, stuff. And here, here it is. Here comes the king. That looks like a king. Here comes Jesus. I keep on thinking of the Shrek donkey. <laughs> He's riding a donkey in the town. I, and I, I mean, of course, he can make the donkey talk. Nobody knows that. But you got this moment where, like, what is going on here? He comes in as a humble king, and it makes no sense to the world. But it seems that the disciples and some of the little kids and some poor people, they get it. And so what do they do? They worship. They start dropping down palm branches, and they start singing about who he is. I don't know if the spirit moves on and makes them do it. I don't know what they, but there's just this moment of power and humility as Jesus rides into town. I don't know if it's two hours later or how, how much longer it is, but in, in Luke chapter 19, after he kind of goes through the process of being chastised by the Pharisees, and he tells the Pharisees, like we said last week, I'll make the stones stand up and worship. But it says that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Not his hometown, but the capital of his people. It has this four or five verses where he just weeps and weeps for these people. He weeps because he knows what's coming. He actually prophesies and he tells them that their city is going to be torn block by block down. And, and as we know history in 70 AD, the temple was literally turned, tore down block by block. So he predicts the demise of his people. And at the end, he has this important thing maybe for us to wrestle with for the week. He says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, I was right here and you didn't get it. The NIV says, because uh, you missed the opportunity for salvation. We're not really the manipulating type of church. But let me just say, if you don't know Jesus, you just heard about him, and you walk out of here, you might have missed the only or the last opportunity you're going to have. Not because we're trying to make you feel bad. It's because we're, we feel desperate about it. Because if you don't recognize him while you walk this earth, he won't recognize you when you get to the judgment seat. So we say that with, because we are one, because we didn't recognize him. And one day, he introduced himself, and we finally got over ourselves, and we humbled ourselves, and we recognized the humble king on a donkey as the king. And we said, we'll worship him despite the way he came and, and walked this earth, even though he doesn't look like the powerful figure we thought he would be. He is the king, and we bow down before him, and we call him our savior. The guys insisted that we kept bread and juice up front this week. Did it last week and evidently it went well because there's just this identification with a lamb, with a weak little lamb whose body was broken and his blood was shed. It comes off like weak. It comes off like a humble king, but it's the most powerful event in the history of the world where everything turned on its head because the Son of God, Jesus, came and died for us so that we could celebrate on Easter. So that death could be put to death and we could celebrate life. 
this incredible picture of a Jesus who would weep for Red Bank because he's in love with her. And he can't stand the idea of her being lost without a Savior. And he knows that the time is short. And the judgment is coming. So you can imagine him begging with his tears for people to believe. That's why the writer writes this book. That's why next week we'll tell about Jesus' resurrection. That's why it might be appropriate for you to worship with your feet and serve somebody this week. It's why it might be appropriate for you to worship with your feet, invite somebody to come in here and hear about him next week. It's just this, it's this worship service, in essence, that we live, and sometimes we're true worshipers, and we sit in who we be, and we spend time with the Savior in a seat, which you can get to worship with song here in just a second. Sometimes we worship with our feet. And this church right here is pretty good at worshiping. If you're new, pretty good with their feet. I'm proud of it. Let's keep it up. Jesus, listen to us as we worship. You know, we just, <laughs> we feel a lot like those disciples. We worship what we know, and we're limited. There are times when we embarrass ourselves. Though we go around this room, and we can line up the dumb things that we've said this week or done. And yet many of us are your followers, and you've seen us. You've seen us struggle. And we pray that you'd be pleased with our struggle. And even now, for those, whether they failed or had a great week, we would like to bring, in essence, ourselves before you as a living sacrifice. We'd like to give you ourselves. And we want to worship you for what you did on the cross. We also want to worship you with our feet. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.